The Moth is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We all have a story to tell, and the Moss Education Program is looking to help young people tell their stories. High school students can develop their storytelling skills with the Moss Summer Story Lab. Join us for a free, one-week-long workshop where you'll learn the art and craft of sharing your own story. From brainstorming to that final mic drop moment, we've got you covered. Plus, you'll make new friends, build skills that shine in school and beyond, and have a blast along the way. Whether it's at the family dinner table or a college essay starter, your story matters. Virtual and in-person options are available to fit your style. Workshops begin in August. Don't miss out. Sign up now and learn more today at themoth.org forward slash story lab. Apply by June 23rd. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm your host, Ray Christian. I'm a storyteller and frequent host for the Moth's live events in Asheville, North Carolina, and the host of the podcast, What's Ray Say, where I explore my many lives as a former ghetto kid, Southern black gentleman, retired army paratrooper, and a doctor of education, connecting centuries of black history to understand my own story. Now, I've had a love of animals for as long as I can remember. In fact, it was my earliest desire as a kid in elementary school to have a zoo in the backyard. And in pursuit of that goal, I gathered up what animals I could. Now, space in my room was a factor, so I had to start small. First, it was the flea circus. Can't tell you how hard they were to collect. Later, I had sea monkeys that looked nothing like they did on the back of that comic book I ordered them from. No smiles, leather skin, or nothing. Later, I moved up to rabbits, turtles, pigeons, cats, and dogs. Today, I have an assortment of dogs, chickens, ducks, and goats. And it's been my experience that it's easy to see human attributes in animal behavior or fall into the tendency to give human motivation to their actions and fail in your attempts to communicate. That's why it's important to think twice before you start imitating animal sounds because you might not know what you're saying. In this hour, stories of chance encounters, standoffs, and the unexpected bonds between humans and the animal kingdom. Our first story comes from Georgia Huff. She told this one at one of our open mic story slams in Houston, at Warehouse Live, where we partner with Houston Public Media. Here's Georgia, live at the mall. 
When I agreed to go hiking with my friends Matt and Kellen at Glacier National Park, I didn't realize that the park is also known as grizzly bear country. <clears throat> now, I'm terrified of grizzly bears. And I think primarily the reason is because at a young age, somebody told me a story about a young woman who had been chased up a tree by a grizzly bear, and then the bear shook her out of the tree and killed her. <clears throat> so it was with a great deal of apprehension that I boarded the flight to go to Montana. And on that flight, I sat next to a man who had grown up in the area, and he told me, first of all, that he didn't go hiking at Glacier National Park because of the grizzly bears. <laughs> and he said, but if you do, then you need to have bear spray. So as soon as we landed, we went to Costco and got some bear spray. And I'm looking at the package and the, reading the directions, and it says, wear this product in the holster provided on your belt. Don't put it in your backpack because you won't have time to get it out. <laughs> it said, don't discharge this product unless a bear is charging. Wait for the bear to get within 20 feet and then spray the bear in the face. <laughs> and then there was a note, and it said, use caution if spraying this product into the wind to avoid getting it in your eyes. <laughs> and I said, you know, they should have just said, note, if you are downwind of the bear, you're just shit out of luck. <laughs> But anyway, we have our bear spray, we're set, and a couple days into the trip, we um, decide to take this remote hike around a lake. And we get to the trailhead, and there's a sign, and it says, danger, beware of the potential for bears in the area. This is grizzly bear country. And I'm thinking, oh great, you know? Um, but we have a plan. There's three of us, we're gonna stay together. Matt is gonna go first, and then uh, his wife, Kellen, and then me. So off we go, and right off the bat, our strategy falls apart, because Matt is this tall, fit man, and he walks about four times faster than I do. So he kept getting out, out of sight out there, and I kept having to call him. Hey, Matt, I can't see you, wait up. And he would cheerfully wait and let me catch up to him, but that's kind of how it went on this hike. And so we're out there, and you know, we've been out there for a couple hours, and I'm thinking, you know, what would I do if I really did see a bear? I mean, maybe I need to have a, a game plan here. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna be calm, I'm gonna be quiet, and I'm gonna whip my bear spray out, <laughs> and I'm gonna wait for it, I'm gonna wait for it. So I got my plan, and you know, that's all well and good. But the truth is that this bear spray is in like a size of a small fire extinguisher. And the holster they give you is like a koozie, and it fits really tightly around this canister. By the time you get that bear spray out of that holster, you're not gonna have to wait for that bear.
because he's going to be there. But anyway, I keep going, and I come across some beer poop. And I'm no beer poop expert, but, you know, there's berries in it, and it's big. <laughs> hey, Matt, I see some beer poop down here, but I don't see you. But I keep going. And then it happens. I hear this rustling in the bushes. My heart is beating so fast and so loud, I don't know how I can hear anything else. I've forgotten all about the bear spray. <laughs> I, hear, I hear the rustling again. Bat! Bat! Where are you? And then it's gone. And I'm okay. I might have peed a little, but I'm okay. <laughs> And as I reflected later on my trip, I thought about how much I really loved hiking and I loved being out in nature. And, you know, bears are part of nature. And I wasn't going to let my fear of grizzlies keep me from doing what I love. And even though I didn't face down a grizzly, I did face down my fear. That was Georgia Huff. Georgia is a retired engineer, and yes, she loves to hike. To see a photo of Georgia, go to themoth.org. Up next is Randy Horick. Randy told this story at a story slam in Nashville at the Basement East, where we partnered with public radio stations WPLN. Fittingly, the theme of the evening was animals. Here's Randy. Every time there's an execution in Tennessee, I think of an experience I had with songbirds. It started a few years ago on a night when an execution was scheduled at River Bend State Prison, and I decided to go for a vigil that they were having before the execution was supposed to begin at midnight. I've always been against the death penalty, and even after my wife's parents were homicide victims, I actually became more against the death penalty. And I figured this was something I needed to go to. So after the kids had gone to bed and my wife had gone to bed, I drove out to Riverbend. You get on Centennial Boulevard and you go all the way basically until the road ends at a bend in the river. And it was surreal. Because as soon as I turned on to Centennial Boulevard, the whole road was lined with police cars banks of three or four of them in a row, about every hundred yards. I realized if you ever wanted to rob a bank in Nashville, the time to do it would be the night they had an execution because half the cops are on Centennial Boulevard. But it only got more surreal as I got to the, the grassy parking area they have outside the prison, and after they searched me and they searched my car and they searched my trunk, and you start walking up a hill toward this big fenced-off area that they have where people can gather for vigils. And as I walked up the hill, I noticed there were mounted state troopers up on the levee by the river. I don't know what they thought they were doing. I don't know if they thought there was going to be a jailbreak or something. But they were there, and it was eerie. And as I walked up the hill, I noticed the moon was rising over the trees, and it was a full moon, and it was blood red. Of all the nights, maybe once a year when we have a blood red moon, 
It was that night. I got up to the hill and the trooper asked me which gate I wanted to go in. They had a separate gate for people that were in favor of the execution and one for people who were against the execution. There was nobody on the side in favor of the execution. It was an empty field. So I went into the area they had marked off for us. It was about 100 yards from the actual prison, the maximum security prison. And there were maybe about half as many people as there are in this room, 50, 75 people. And it was eerily quiet. It was a cold spring night. People were kind of huddled together. Nobody was much saying anything. Some people had gone off to one corner, one empty place to pray, it looked like. Some people were just sitting quietly. They were looking at their cell phones to see if there were updates. This had been a case that had drawn a lot of attention because there were real questions about the man, about the man being innocent and whether he was eligible for capital punishment. And there was also evidence that the prosecutor in Memphis and the medical examiner had withheld evidence um, from the defense team that might have made him ineligible for the death penalty. So a lot of people had been examining this case and people had petitioned the governor to grant clemency. People were waiting and watching their cell phones to see what kind of news there would be. Maybe the court would grant a last minute stay. And people were kind of sitting quietly like that. And I looked over and I saw Steve Earle was there. This is one of those things, I guess, that can only happen in Nashville. And he pulled out a guitar. And only in Nashville can you stand next to sing Earl, Steve Earle and sing, I shall be released. And after he, but he wasn't the most memorable singer of the evening. Because about the time he quit, about 11 p.m., everybody heard this songbird. I don't know whether it was a whippoorwill or a mockingbird. He was far in the distance because there weren't any trees in this field. But he was as loud as if he was in the back of the room. And he was singing furiously with a full throat. I'd always heard that expression, singing furiously. But I had a new appreciation for it after that. Because it was like with the moon and with this bird, all of nature was somehow in rebellion against what was happening. Like he was saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't kill, don't kill. And he kept it up for an hour. And everybody who people were talking about it on social media the next morning, everybody who was there heard this bird and he didn't stop until right about midnight when the execution was supposed to begin. And we waited and we waited and finally about 1230, the news came, somebody had their cell phone, they had carried out the execution. And so the police ushered us out and we went back down the hill and passed the mounted troopers and got in our cars and drove home. And when I got home, I went up to my front porch and I stopped because there in front of the front door, right on the welcome mat, was a dead songbird. And I just stopped and I thought, I grieved silently for this bird for several minutes. Even in death, it was perfect, it was still, it was beautiful. And I thought, why? Did God go to sleep too? The governor was asleep. Why did this happen? And I just sat there, and instead of going in the house, I went around to the back, and I got a hand trail. And I went out and I made a space 
in our garden. And now, I don't think about that night very often, but I thought about it last week because we executed another person last week in the state. And every time that happens, I think of that bird that sang, and I think of the bird that died. And sometimes late at night, on those nights after everybody's gone to bed, I go out to that little grave in our flower bed, and I say a little prayer. Thank you. That was Randy Horrick. Randy is a writer living in Nashville with his wife, Grace, his dog, Wallace, and a varying number of rescued cats. During his career, he has been a sports writer, a speech writer, a corporate writer, and a writer in almost every category except the one people in Nashville think of when they hear the word writer, songs. When asked what it was like sharing his story, he said that afterwards, a young man came up to him and said that that story had changed his life. No one had ever told him anything like that before. In a moment, running rams and mysterious cats. That's coming up on the Moth Radio Hour. Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. Support for The Moth comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash moth. That's odoo.com slash moth. Odoo, modern management made simple. For over a century, Brooks has been propelled by a never-ending curiosity with how humans move. It drives their every decision and every innovation because they believe movement is the key to feeling more alive. And we're all moving towards something. It could be to run a 5K and raise money for a cause you believe in, to take the lead on your family's annual Thanksgiving Day hike, or, for me, I love how clear my head feels after a long run. But living in Brooklyn means I'm running on cement. So my head feels great, but my knees, not so much. That's why I'm so happy to have the cushioning of the Brooks Ghost Max shoes that let me go a little bit further and feel a little bit clearer. And with my new reflective run visible vest, I can chase this high before the sun is even up and kickstart my day. So let's run there with gear and experiences specifically designed to take you to that place whether it's a headspace, a feeling, or a finish line. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Ray Christian, and this hour is all about animals. Our next story was told by Michelle Woods, 
who at the time was raising sheep in Scotland with her shepherd husband. Now I'm more of a goat man myself, but what sheep and goats have in common is they seem to always be hungry and have an intense need to graze for several hours a day and nothing will keep them away from it. Michelle told this story at an open mic story slam competition in Sydney, Australia, where we partnered with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, ABC RN. Here's Michelle. It's 2008 and uh, I'm married to a shepherd and I'm living in a little island off the west coast of Scotland. It's staggeringly beautiful. Uh, only one problem is the locals. Um, I was under a lot of pressure to fit in and be accepted and not seen as some Aussie, Irish Aussie blowing. Uh, but I digress. I had a very important job to do that day. Uh, my husband was away on the mainland at the dentist and uh, I had one job to do that day. We'd managed to flog Froak, our rampaging ram, for the princely sum of 300 quid to Donald McDonald on the neighboring island. <laughs> true, it's all true. And uh, all I had to do was uh, just hand over Froak. He'd be contained in his little frank in the front garden. And I had to hand over the ram, take the money. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so flushed with confidence, popped down the village to buy a pint of milk to go with the scones I'd made uh, to impress Donald with my croft wife skills. And uh, as I pulled into the top of the driveway, just taking in the scene, my heart stopped. What did I see but Froak gambling, yes, gambling like a spring lamb in the huge front macker, instead of safely contained in the little frank, in the little front garden already for Donald McDonald. 30 minutes, 30 minutes I had. So I sped down the driveway, ditched the car, ran into the bar, grabbed a bucket of feed. Now, if there's one thing Froak cannot resist, it's molasses-covered nuts. <laughs> he will flatten anyone and anything to get to those nuts, including me. So I thought, no, no, big time to just, you know, knuckle under, you can do this, you can do this. So my evil plan is to scatter like Hansel and Gretel a little trail of sheep nuts from the big field through the little cottage gate into the little cottage garden where then Donald McDonald and I will be able to catch him a bit easier. I thought, you know, this is going to happen, scattered the nuts and, uh, and then I opened the gate and I squatted down behind the gate to hide and I left the bucket there and my cunning plan was have a munch his way up, come through the gate, once the head's in the bucket I'll kick the gate shut and there we'll be. Uh, so I'm crouched behind the gate, I'm thinking, ah, I'm university educated, this dumb ram's no match for me. <laughs> I'll show these villagers. And uh, yeah, hear him crunch, 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 crunch. And he's just about to come through the gate when I happen to glance up to my right and I notice I've left the big gate open that goes up the driveway and down to the village. Change of plan, I kick the gate shut and slam. And suddenly Froak looks up and realizes there's now a gate between him and the hallowed big bucket of nuts. He's raging. He starts scraping the ground with his hoof. I think I can see steam coming out of his nostrils. And I, I fancy I can hear him say, well, girly girl, you think you're going to take me on? 
I get up off my knees to go walk to shut the big gate and I think, Christ, I've got to get to the mainland more often. <laughs> As I turn around to saunter to the gate, out of the corner of my eye, that's when I see him launch his hundred kilogram carcass over the gate and over me. <laughs> and it all happens in slow motion. First of all, the little hairy front hoofs go past my ears. And then his oily undercarriage <laughs> through my hair. And then the sun is blotted out <laughs> as these two enormous bulls come towards him. But I whip my face to the side like that. And then reflexively, I grab onto those two rapidly disappearing ankles. I don't know why, but I just did the pressure. And then, woof, we cut back to real time and slap. <laughs> I did that on purpose. We land on the front lawn. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is when he starts to run. He starts running and I'm being towed behind like a rag doll. He takes me over grassy tussocks, rabbit holes, scattered sheep shit, you name it, he does it. And I think, I'm not letting go. And that's when I see the gravel drive come into vision. And I realize I'm about to have a very permanent, very painful breast reduction. <laughs> and as I'm trying to lift myself up, I glance under my armpit. I look out across the sound and I see a little orange boat going by. And it can only mean one damning thing. It is the orange rubber speedboat of Donald McDonald zipping down the sound, meaning he'll be up on the borough quad bike and trailer to collect his ram in five minutes. And I'm just beside myself. I've got to do something. And that's when all my film watching comes back to me and saves me. I have a flash of Crocodile Dundee's seminal <laughs> death roll with that crocodile. <laughs> and I go, well. And so I fling myself to the right and we roll over and over and over like I saw him do to that crocodile. And the look on Frog's face is priceless. The little shit is winded. And it's the only gap I need. So I leap on him straddle him, pin him down on the ground by his horns and I look into his roomy yellow eyes and I go, I may only be an incomer, but you today Froge, you're an outgoer <laughs> and at that precise moment in buzzes Donald McDonald on his quad bike and I look up and go ah, hello Donald, you're here I thought I'd just get Froge out the fank for you so we'd have time to go in for a cuppa and some scones before you head back <laughs> That was Michelle Woods. Michelle parted ways with her shepherd, but she started over and now lives on a small farm in the great southern region of Western Australia, where she battles ravenous mice, mobs of kangaroos, and lethal tiger snakes. I asked her why she chose sheep over goats, and she told me that it was simply because the black Hebridean sheep is indigenous to the west of Scotland. Michelle said she kind of forgave him. He was only trying to get that feed bucket of molasses-coated nuts. Of course he was. Our next story comes from Fran Crass, who told it at an event at the Promontory in Chicago, which was supported by public radio station WBEZ. Here's Fran. 
live at the mall. So when I was in my mid-40s, I gave up my city life and bought a five-acre farm in rural Indiana. It was pure joy. It was the farm I'd always dreamed of since I was a kid. And along with it came uh, a whole host of challenges, but uh, it has also come with many, many joyful things. The most of which is the herd of critters I've accumulated, which now is a senior horse, a miniature donkey, two llamas, assorted cats, the occasional dog, and a husband. <laughs> so, but one of the most interesting critters that we had along the way was a cat that appeared the very first night that I slept there. Well, actually, we slept there, my now husband and then boyfriend brought sleeping bags and slept in the den in front of the glass, sliding glass doors. And along nightfall, a little face appeared at this door, a very handsome looking cat, uh, kind of brown with white features, but also carrying, I guess, a housewarming present, a little dead thing that he proceeded to wipe all over this door. <laughs> which I was sort of sat up in my sleeping bag a little stunned, and my then-boyfriend says to me, well, welcome to the Franny farm. So this cat decided that he lived there and proceeded to move into our window box. Um, he was beautiful, big, and stout, and he was kind of a brown tiger with white features, a white bib, and white paws, and a white chin. And he had a kind of a brown head and a, a chin strap that went under his white chin that looked like the leather cap that a, a flying, a pilot might wear. So I called him Ace. And Ace was spectacular. He was the barn cat I dreamed of. He was a spectacular hunter. He took care of all the mice in the barn. Yay, because hello, I moved to the, I moved to the country and was scared of mice. <laughs> And he was just, he was wonderful. He would, he was there every day when I did chores. He came and went, had adventures I did not know anything about. Sometimes he was gone for days, sometimes months. And he would reappear just as if nothing had changed and I would always be so happy to see him. One day we were leaving the farm actually to go to a birthday, my birthday party. And we pulled out of the driveway and on the road was Ace dead in the middle. Needless to say, this was not joyful. I was hysterical with grief. And I told my husband, we had to, or then boyfriend, but had to go home and get something to wrap him in and give him a proper burial. So we did that. We went home. We got my favorite sweatshirt, wrapped him up, dug a hole, and my husband put him in there. And I asked him to turn him over so I could pet him, but I did not want to see his beautiful damaged face. And I petted him, and we buried him. And I said, let's go to the party, but don't tell anyone because I don't want to discuss this. And so we did. The Sunday following this tragedy, I was out doing my usual chores, and my husband, a very large African-American gentleman, appears looking quite pale. And I'm like, what's wrong? And he said, guess who's come to dinner? And I was like, who comes to dinner in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, on a Sunday night? And he says, Ace. Well, in a matter of seconds, I'm having a Stephen King nightmare flash before my eyes. 
And I think, oh my God, I, you know, vet bills, are we going to have to go through this death all over again? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I look outside and here's this beautiful cat sitting there looking as majestic as ever. He hadn't always been so uh, open to having me hug him and stuff, but I picked him up, gave him a big hug, cried, laughed. I couldn't believe it. There was not a hair on his head that had been damaged. It was, un it was a miracle. So during the following week, we talked about this kind of incessantly about, I can't believe this cat. You know, how could this possibly be? I touched this cat. I put it in the ground, blah, 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 blah. And then it got really silent, and I said to my husband, I said, you know, I did something odd today. And he said, what was that? And I said, well, I checked the grave. <laughs> and he said, what did you find? I said, nothing, it was undisturbed. And he said, well, to be honest, I checked it too. <laughs> and like you, we laughed and laughed and laughed. So that became a, just a wonderful part of the story of this farm. And from then on, we called this cat Ace Not in the Hole and the one that we buried. <laughs> and the one that we buried, we called Dead Ringer. <laughs> That was Fran Kras. Fran lives on five acres in Northwest Indiana. She shares it with one dog, three cats, two donkeys, a llama named Obama, and her husband, Harold. In a moment, a man finds comfort in his connection to a wild cat when the Moth Radio Hour continues. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. You're listening to the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Ray Christian. In this episode, we're exploring stories about all creatures, great and small. Our final story is told by Alan Rabinowitz. He told this at a main stage event way back in 2005 at the New York Public Library. Here's Al. I was five years old, standing in the old great cat house at the Bronx Zoo, staring into the face of an old female jaguar. I remember looking at the bare walls and the bare ceiling, wondering what the animal had done to get itself there. I leaned in a little towards the cage and started whispering something to the jaguar. But my father came over quickly and asked, what are you doing? I turned to him to try to explain, but my mouth froze, as I knew it would. Because everything about my young childhood at that time was characterized by the inability to speak.
From the earliest time that I tried to speak, I was handicapped with a severe, severe stutter. Not the normal kind of repetitious b-b-b kinds of stutter that, that many stutterers have or many children go through, but the complete blockage of airflow, and where if I try to push words out, my head would spasm and my body would spasm. Nobody, nobody knew what to do with me. At the time, there were very few books written about stuttering. There was no computer, no internet. The reaction of the New York City public school system was to put me in a class for disturbed children. I remember my parents trying to fight it, telling them he's not disturbed. But the teachers said, we're, we're sorry. When, whenever he tries to speak, it disrupts everything and everybody. So I spent my, my youth wondering why adults couldn't see into me, why they couldn't see I was normal, and all the words were inside of me, but, but they just wouldn't, wouldn't come out. Fortunately, at a very young age, I learned what most stutterers learn at some point. You can do two things without stuttering, at least two things. One of them is sing, and I couldn't sing. The other is you can talk to animals and not stutter. So every day I would come home from the special class, which all the other kids called the retarded class, and I'd go straight to my room, and I'd go to a closet in my room, and I had a little dark corner of that closet. And I'd go into the closet, and I'd close the door, and I'd bring my pets, New York-style pets, hamster, gerbil, green turtle, a chameleon, occasionally a garter snake, and I would talk to them. I would talk fluently to them. I would tell them my hopes and my dreams. I would tell them how people were stupid because they thought I was stupid. And the animals listened. They felt it. And I realized very early that they felt it because they were like me. The animals, they had feelings too. They were trying to, to, to transmit things also, but they had no human voice. So people ignored them, or they misunderstood them, or they hurt them, or sometimes they, they killed them. I swore to the animals when I was young that if I could ever find my voice, I would try to be their voice. But I didn't know if that would happen, because I realized that, that I lived in two worlds. One world was the world where I was normal with animals. I, I could speak. The other world was the world of human beings, where I couldn't. My parents didn't know what to do. They tried everything. They tried hypnotherapy. They tried drug therapy. They sent me to many kinds of psychologists. But nothing, nothing really worked. I got through school, through grade school, junior high school, high school, and eventually college by, by learning tricks stutterers learn, learning when to not speak, learning to avoid situations, learning ju just to not be around people. When I did have to speak, then I would prove to people that I was not only like them, but I was better than they were. In the academics, I excelled. I, I got straight A's in everything. 
In sports, I joined the wrestling team and the boxing team in high school and college, and I took all my teams or helped take them to the state championships. Everybody always said I was an up-and-coming athlete, and I wasn't. I didn't even like it. I was just a very, very frustrated young man who had to find an outlet for his anger. But by the time I was a senior in college, I had never been out on a date with a girl. I had never kissed a girl, except for my mother. And I had never spoken a completely fluent sentence out loud to another human being. About midway through my senior year in college, my parents learned of an experimental new program upstate New York in, in Geneseo where it was very intense. They had to send me away and I was essentially locked away for two months. It was working with severe, severe stutters, but it was very expensive. But they would do anything for me. So my father sold something very dear to him in order to send me there. That clinic changed my life. It taught me two very important things. One of them was that I was a stutterer and I was always going to be a stutterer. There was no magic pill and I was not going to wake up one morning as I had always dreamt and be a fluent speaker. But the other thing it taught me, the more important thing, was that if I did what they were teaching me at this clinic, which was give me the tools, the mechanics, to mechanically control my mouth, the airflow, if I worked hard, I could be a completely fluent stutterer. And I worked hard. And it was unbelievable. For the first time in 20 years, I could speak. I could speak. In 20 years, I, I had never been able to, to voice everything inside of me. Now I could. It took a lot of work, because while I was speaking, I had to be thinking about hard contacts, airflow, this and that. But it, but it didn't matter. None of it mattered. I was a fluent speaker now. It, life would be different. I would go back to school, and they would accept me. I returned to finish the last half of my college year, and things were different on the outside. I could speak, but nothing had changed on the inside. Too much had happened for that. I was still the stuttering, broken child inside. Throughout my academic years, I had focused on science. I loved science, because science to me was the study of truths apart from the world of human beings. And when I got to college, I decided to channel that science into medicine, pre-medicine, thinking that maybe if I become a doctor, people will like me, people will accept me. But I never liked working with people. And when I got back from the clinic, I realized I can't be doing this. I, I hate being in labs. And worse than that, I hated I was tortured by feeling the frustration and the pain of the lab animals in the little cages spinning in those little wheels. So I applied to graduate school at the University of Tennessee in wildlife biology and zoology, and I got accepted. And that first year, I was down in Tennessee in the Great Smoky Mountains studying black bears. When I was in the forest with the animals, I was at home. This was what I was meant to be doing. 
Being in the forest alone with the animals was my real world closet. This is what made me feel good. And I came to realize what I'd always known in my heart, but never been able to put it into words. And that's that the truths of the world, the reality, is not defined by the spoken word. In fact, it's not even speakable. And, and I knew that this was, this was how I had to live my life, somehow. Fortunately, right before I got my PhD, I met the preeminent wildlife biologist in my field, Dr. George Schaller. He and I spent the day together following bears in the Smoky Mountains, and at the end of the day, George said to me, Alan, how would you like to go to Belize and be the first one to try to study jaguars in the jungle? <laughs> the very first thought in my mind, I remember it so clearly, was where the hell is Belize? <laughs> but the very first words out of my mouth, not 30 seconds after he had asked me that, was of course I'll go. Of course. Within two months, I had bought an old Ford pickup truck, <laughs> packed everything I owned in the back, which didn't even take up half of it, and I drove from New York to Central America. Those last few miles, <laughs> that's a separate story, those last few miles of driving into that jungle where I would set up base camp for the next two years was just unbelievable to me. Driving by the Mayan Indians, gawking at me, I was entering the jungle to catch jaguars, which nobody knew how to, and put radio collars on, on them and get data that nobody had ever gotten before. This was what my life was all about. This was where it had to take me. For the next year, I did just what I set out to do. I learned from hunters. I learned how to capture jaguars. I captured them. I followed them. Many things tried to stop me from my goal. There was, there was a plane crash where I almost died. There was one of my men got bitten by a, a ferdolance, a poisonous snake, and unfortunately he died. Many diseases. But, and, and those changed me, and I had to really look upon things differently. But this was my life. This was where I knew I could stay forever and be happy and be comfortable. But I couldn't. Because I also realized that, that as fast as I was catching jaguars and gathering information about them, they were being killed in front of me. My jaguars were being killed. The outside jaguars out of my study area were being killed. They were all being wiped out. Yes, I could sit in that jungle, but then I wouldn't be true to myself. And more important, I wouldn't be true to the promise I made to the animals in the closet, that I would be their voice. And I had the voice now if I wanted to use it. So I realized I had to leave it. I had to come back into the world of people and try to fight with the world of people to save the animals and these jaguars in particular. But ironically, I realized that if I was going to save these jaguars, not only did I have to enter the world of people again, but I had to go to the highest levels of government. I had to talk to the prime minister. Well, it took some doing, but within six months, I was standing in the capital city outside the office of the prime minister. He had given me an appointment with the cabinet 
They'd given me 15 minutes, had no idea what I was going to say to them. Frankly, I'm sure they gave me the appointment because they just wanted to meet this crazy foreigner who was in the jungle catching jaguars. <laughs> I had 15 minutes. I couldn't stutter. I couldn't stutter. I couldn't distract them from the point of trying to save jaguars. I had to use everything I had learned and be a completely fluent speaker and convince one of the poorest countries in Central America, no protected areas in the entire country at the, the, the time, a place where tourism wasn't even of economic benefit, ecotourism wasn't even a term at the time, that they had to save jaguars. An hour and a half later, I came out of there amidst laughter, backslaps. The prime minister and the cabinet had voted to set up the world's first and only Jaguar preserve. And I promised them I would make it work. I promised them I would show them it could be of economic benefit. A month later, I was in the jungle following my Jaguars. You never see jaguars. If you see them, they'll be killed. So the, the most prominent evidence of jaguars are their tracks. I knew all my jaguars in the study area from their tracks. But this one day when I was in there trying to see where they were all going and what they were all doing, I crossed a completely new track. It was the biggest male jaguar I had ever seen in my life, the biggest track. I knew I had, had to follow him hoping I could catch a glimpse, but at least finding out what he was doing in here. Whether he had come in from the outside, was he passing through? I followed him for hours, glued on those tracks, until I realized it was getting dark, and I didn't want to be caught in the jungle at night without a flashlight. So I turned around to go back to camp. As soon as I turned around, there he was not 15 feet in back of me. That jaguar, which I had been following, had circled around and was following me as I was following him. <laughs> he could have killed me at any time. He, he could have gotten me at any time. I didn't even hear him. I knew I should feel frightened, but I didn't. Instinctively, I just squatted down, and the jaguar sat. And I looked into this jaguar's eyes, and I was so clearly reminded of the little boy looking into to the sad old female at the Bronx Zoo. But this animal wasn't sad. In this animal's eyes, there was strength and power and sureness of purpose. And I also realized as I was looking into his eyes that what I was seeing was a reflection of the way I was feeling, too. That little broken boy and that old broken jaguar were now this. <laughs> Suddenly, I felt scared. I knew I should be scared. And I stood up and took a step back. The jaguar stood up too, turned, and started to walk off into the forest. After about 10 feet, it stopped and turned to look back at me. I looked at the jaguar, 
and I leaned a little towards it, the way I had at the Bronx Zoo so many years before, and I whispered to it, it's okay now. It's all going to be okay. And the jaguar turned and was gone. Thank you. That was Alan Rabinowitz. Dr. Rabinowitz was one of the world's leading big cat experts and was called the Indiana Jones of Wildlife Conservation by Time Magazine. He was a longtime CEO of Panthera, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to saving the world's wildcat species. He died in 2018, but his work continues on in the legions of students he mentored and the wildlife advocates he inspired with his relentless and fearless advocacy for wildcats and their wild places. To see photos of Alan, go to themoth.org. That's it for this episode of the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next week. And that's the story from the Moth. This episode of the Moth Radio Hour was produced by me, Jay Allison, Suzanne Rust, and Ray Christian, who hosted the show. Ray is also the host of the podcast, What's Ray Saying?, which you can find in all the familiar places. Our co-producer is Vicki Merrick, associate producer Emily Couch. The stories were directed by Catherine Burns. The rest of the Moss leadership team includes Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, Jennifer Hickson, Meg Bowles, Kate Tellers, Marina Cluche, Leanne Gully, Brandon Grant, Sarah Jane Johnson, and Aldi Casa. Moss stories are true as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Regina Carter, Julian Lodge and Chris Eldridge, Cowboy Junkies, Goat Rodeo Session, Bill Frizzell, and Carmex. We receive funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching us your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org.